For the News and Observer, I'm Don Vaughn, Capitol Bureau Chief and host of Under the Dome, and you're listening to our latest episode for the week of October 2nd, 2023. Today is the 10th day since the state budget was sent to Democratic Governor Roy Cooper's desk, and it's also the day that the clock runs out. The way the law works in North Carolina is you can, a governor can sign, veto, or let it become law without his signature in 10 days, which is what he did. He didn't like a lot of stuff in the budget, but he really liked that Medicaid expansion was part of it. And that's been the longest, maybe not longest, recent history battle in North Carolina politics over Medicaid expansion. So to bring some more insight into that, I sat down this past week with our North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services Secretary, Cody Kinsley, in his office in the Adams Building, which is on the DHHS campus at Dix Park. It won't be there for long. Those of you that drive down Blue Ridge Road very often, which I managed to pass it maybe four or five times this past week, and the new HHS headquarters is pretty far along in construction. The frame is up at several stories. There's cranes there. So anyway, he's still over at, uh, at Dick's Park for now. So that's, that's where we talked. So we had a little bit of audio issues with the recording in his office. So I'm here in our NNO studio to introduce the highlights of my conversation with Secretary Kinsley. And I'll introduce each of those so you can hear what he had to say. I asked things about the moment he knew expansion was happening, what else is in the budget, what he thinks of those raises for DHHS workers in the budget, and then, of course, COVID. Then after the break, I'll be back with my D.C. colleague, Danielle Battaglia, to talk about the latest on the federal government shutdown, dress codes, and our pick for headliner of the week. So to get rolling, uh, I asked Kinsley what has to happen for Medicaid expansion to actually start December 1st? You know, is this paperwork? What is it? So here's what he had to say about why here we are at, you know, very early October and why it'll be December 1st. Here, Here's that. So it's a couple of things. So for us, one, uh, it is policy documents. So, you know, we have to put out a state plan amendment that has to be posted for public comment and people have to be able to respond to it, much like any other coverage rule in the Medicaid program it requires um, public notice and approval by CMS. This is a, similar to any other eligibility change we would make. Um, there's a number of other things that we have to do with the federal government around the way the money flows to us and various other calculations and processes. Um, there's also a lot of technology changes. So we operate a centralized eligibility system that our DSS offices use. Um, to process eligibility. And so we have to change the rules by which those processing take place. We also have invested a lot over the last year to allow people to go in and put their information in and for their processing to go through in an automated way so that individual workers don't have to touch with files. We have to update that system as well called EPAS. Um, and then there's a lot of beneficiary communication. And then remember, we're operating in a managed care environment. And so we've got to give people the chance to select a managed care organization, one of the four statewide plans they're going to participate in, uh, and how they navigate to the right uh, managed care organization. Or And so, um, you know, there's, there's going to be a series of, you know, communications and member choice and processing thing we go through to get us to day one. And then I also asked him about the moment that, that it set in, <clears throat> that Medicaid expansion is, is here, that this is actually happening. And he uh, introduced that a little bit, talking about the weather and the, the spring signing of the bill. So here's what he had to say. First off, I'll drive a connection that 
leading up to the bipartisan um, bill signing uh, in March of the Medicaid expansion while it had been really bad weather. And then the spring skies parted and it was beautiful out. And then we similarly had a uh, deluge of rain over the weekend. And here you are in Dick Park. <laughs> it's gorgeous out again. So I'm deciding that Medicaid expansion is related to that. My meteorologist friends may disagree. Um, for me, that moment was was Friday. Um, you know, first off, I'm so grateful to the governor that he has not wavered in his push to get Medicaid expansion done. Um, I'm grateful for a lot of our Republican legislators who have been out in front when it wasn't popular. Uh, and I'm grateful that we finally got to a point this year where it's hard to find anybody against Medicaid expansion, but we just had to get it done. And, um, and you know, it's a lot of wasted effort and a lot of wasted dollars by preparing and then re-preparing and just the opportunity cost of drawing down roughly $400 million a month of Medicaid um, billables. So, uh, to get to that foundational point, which again was was for me on Friday when you know the governor went through a very thoughtful process to make his decision to let this become law without his signature, um, gave us the foundation that we needed to move forward full speed ahead, and that was you know a sense of assurance and relief for for all of us, and I, and I hope for the hundreds of thousands of people that that know this is coming and will benefit from it. And he also talked about uh, not just that it was Governor Cooper's priority for, for many years and Democrats, but there were also Republicans that wanted it before all the rest of the Republicans wanted it. So he talked a little bit about who those Republicans are, some still in the legislature, some not, and then how things got rolling once once things moved ahead. So here's what Kinsley said. You know, I, I think back to when I first got, um, came home to North Carolina to start working in the state. And at the time, Representative Dobson was, of course, out in front on this issue. And, and he, you know, pushed really hard in the House. Um, and then uh, at the same time, or, you know, obviously Representative Lambo as well in the House. Uh, and then, you know, we started to see uh, the... You know, more and more folks in the Senate move. And then, of course, uh, when Senator Berger uh, made his plea um, uh, to move this, you know, that was a real sea change moment. Um, I've had the particular benefit of getting to know and working really closely with Senator Jim Bergen. He and I have traveled all over the state. Uh, and, um, you know, I, we were holding like town halls. I think we've done 13 mental health town halls across the state so far. He and I, we always have the other legislators from the local delegation with us. Um, and it's really funny to be in these conversations where Republicans and Democrats, everybody's talking about how great Medicaid expansion is going to be. So it, it's been great to have the view of that change. But you know, I think we got here because of really three things. I think thing one was this sort of non-traditional coalition when I first came back to North Carolina to run the behavioral health system, I was leading a lot of our work around opioids. So working closely with with law enforcement all across the state. You know, it's been in the last year where they've come forward very vocally and said, we have to get expansion done. I think that was a big addition to the non-traditional coalition of chambers and business operators and other entities across the state that have said, we need to do this. And I think that moved people in a different way. I think the second thing that has really made a difference here was our history of operating the Medicaid program well. I think that that has given us a foundation here to, to do on top of managed care something that will be beneficial. And then last but but certainly not least is that in the last year, um, well, actually in 2020, when uh, President Trump signed ARPA into law, it 
you know, gave a signing bonus to states that had not yet been, uh, you know, expanded Medicaid. Something else really important in the budget that for a lot of people is raises because there's a 25% vacancy rate statewide and state government. And part of that is that they're not paid enough and you're, you're competing with the private sector. And so every year, a lot of the big things in the budget, yes, people want to talk about taxes and everything else, but for those tens of thousands of state employees and teachers' base pay is also set by the legislature, uh, they wanted to know how much money they were getting. And the uh, uh, turnover and shortages is especially acute for DHHS. And of course, they have uh, vital services. So I asked uh, Cody about what he thinks of those raises and a little more money in there for some of the harder to fill jobs. So here's his answer. So some of our most recent data shows that that turnover is slowing down, that we are recruiting more folks. And I think that's parallels with the overall slowdown of some of the job aspects of the economy and, and people are not changing jobs as frequently. But yeah, we're running a relay race at the department and every fourth person is missing. You know, with a near 25% vacancy rate, it's, you know, just really challenging to offer the critical life-saving services that we offer to the people in North Carolina every day. Um, I would have loved for you know the the salary increases to be more on par with what we're seeing in the market. Um, but uh, I'm grateful for the 7% over two years. I'm grateful for the roughly $20 million to do some particular retention incentives in our healthcare facility. And remember, a majority of my team, the 18,000 positions that we have, more than 10,000 of them are in hospital settings. You know, my competitors are Duke and UNC and, you know, Mission, and that, that's where I lose my doctors and my nurses too. I need to compete with them, which means... Uh, a lot of things. It means more money, more efficiency, faster hiring offers, et cetera, stuff like that. Uh, and so we're working to improve those things. And I'm grateful that the General Assembly has helped do that. So now that Medicaid expansion is here, what's what's next? What's the next big ask? And what uh, Kinsley said, a lot of it was uh, already in this budget about funding for uh, different uh, health in a whole bunch of variety of ways. So he kind of goes through a lot of what that is. Well, you know, Medicaid expansion is huge. And so rightly so, it's taking the the top of the fold here. But I don't want to miss the fact that earlier this year, we put out a billion dollar investment roadmap for behavioral health in North Carolina. And this budget gave us $700 million of that roadmap, of which about 220 million of it are recurring dollars. And so pound for pound, that pretty much gave us everything that we asked for. This is $99 million to do behavioral health interventions in jail-based settings, um, to do crisis services across the state, to build more behavioral health urgent care centers. You know, one of my top priorities of the department has been behavioral health and resiliency. We, we have been really tight with the General Assembly and trying to bring them along on why this is so important. They're hearing from their constituents. And so I don't want to lose the fact that, that we got that in this budget. We also got, um, you know, a strong focusing of our existing public mental health system. We got a foster care plan that will allow us to modernize the way we deliver care there. Um, we got, you know, $150 million for public health and OCME and uh, our chief medical examiner and vital records, which we know people have struggled with. So th this budget, I mean, is a huge expansion of a health investment in North Carolina. And so, yeah, it is 
you know, below the fold Medicaid expansion. That's our big transformational thing. Um, but uh, I think this is also uh, a demonstration of the trust and confidence that the General Assembly has in the electoral thing. From there, we're going to implement full speed ahead. And for short session, uh, you know, yeah, look, there's lots more that we can be doing to increase access to care in rural communities in North Carolina. We've got big workforce problems around healthcare workforce, and these are, you know, healthcare workforce problems or tenure pipeline issues that we've got to tackle. So there's lots more that we can do um, in this space. And everybody knows that, you know, Kinsley is the face of North Carolina DHHS now, but it used to be Mandy Cohen, who's now CDC director, and a lot of my work life and daily life centered around those weekly press briefings that she had for, the, you know, most of the duration of the pandemic with, with Governor Cooper. And of course, Kinsley was working there the whole time, too. But anyway, I asked him about COVID because that's a, a big thing that um, DHHS still thinks about and what that means for the fall. And here's what he said about that. Yeah. So, you know, the great news is that we have the tools to manage COVID so it doesn't manage us. And we're thinking about COVID all across the country in the same way that we think about other respiratory illnesses. Um, we're obviously still kind of solidifying what will be the probably annual schedule of COVID boosters, but it's great that right now we have one available. Uh, encourage folks to watch our dashboard, which shows our most recent data and trends around the rise and fall of COVID along with other respiratory illnesses. Things have been rising over the last several weeks. They actually ticked down last week a little bit, but they'll continue to toggle up and down. Um, and I encourage folks to to make sure they get their booster. It is the most powerful tool that they have to prevent illness. I might you notice I'm talking more with my right hand than my left because my left arm's a little sore from my two shots earlier. Um, but the other thing I really want to double down on for folks is, in, you know, have rapid tests at home. So if you're not feeling well, you can, you know, swab and know what's going on. And then if you are sick, if you do test positive for, for COVID, there are therapeutics that are widely available, antiviral drugs that are highly effective. And what's really important is that, A, the vast majority of North Carolinians are eligible for these drugs. They're for individuals that are likely to develop issues because of their high-risk nature of, of the virus, but the most people qualify for that based off the criteria the FDA puts out. The second thing is that it is not about how sick you are today. It is how sick you could become. And the sooner you take it, regardless of your symptoms, the better. All right. So as I was saying, this is our first segment with Secretary Kinsley. I appreciate him being on. Uh, it was nice to see his office. He has his dog in his office a lot. His dog was not there that day. So that was a little bit of a bummer. <clears throat> but um, anyway, it was nice to um, be out at, uh, at Dick's Park. We appreciate him him hosting us. So. Uh, I'll be back after the break, and I'm going to talk with our D.C. correspondent, Danielle Battaglia, about the feds and our picks for headliner of the week. I'll be right back. You're listening to Under the Dome. Before the break, I had uh, DHHS Secretary Cody Kinsley. Since the budget clock runs out, North Carolina actually has a state budget here in October, um, even though that's way past when it should have been, but at least it showed up. Now I'm talking about a different level of government, the federal government, with our Washington, D.C. correspondent, Danielle Battaglia, and they've had their own drama lately. Danielle, what what in the world would this threats of shutdown again? <laughs> well, we too need funding uh, at the government, um, and it's the federal government. So um, I think... I try to be mindful that 
we are always threatening to have a shutdown. And I think that people are kind of tired of hearing about it and don't think it's real. But I will say this is one of those moments that I think that people need to take it really seriously. Um, If we do not pass a government funding bill by Saturday at midnight, we will shut down. I don't see at this point, we're recording this Friday. I think this comes out Monday. So I'm doing a little, uh, you'll know by the time this comes out, but I'm predicting there's no way we're not shutting down unless they pull something out last minute. And that's going to affect a lot of people in North Carolina. So this is a very serious moment. I will say the mood on Capitol Hill is very different than most threats of a shutdown. We've actually gotten a list of all the services within the Capitol that people probably don't even know we have access to that will be shut down next week. When a shutdown happens, that's not typical for what we see with these threats. So this is getting very real very fast. So who's to who's really to blame? I mean, everyone will blame each other, right? No one wants to take responsibility. Yeah. But what, what does it actually come down to? I had to explain this to one of our uh, North Carolina lawmakers yesterday um, who asked me because he's seen headlines that Republicans are to blame, but Democrats are voting against these spending bills. So he wanted me to break this down. And the reason Republicans are getting the blame is because um, there's a infight between the House Freedom Caucus, which is our ultra conservative members of the Republican Party in the House, and then um, the regular wing of the Republican Party. And basically, the Freedom Caucus had a list of demands that they wanted House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to meet in order to pass government funding um, this year. The, these uh, This agreement that they claim they have, I don't know whether it's accurate or not, but the claims that they made started in January when they agreed to make him House Speaker. They say he's not meeting those demands. They also came out with a list of demands in August, like, not funding the Ukraine war, building um, the wall at the southern border, uh, indicting Hunter, or have, not indicting Hunter Biden, um, having an investigation into Hunter Biden, uh, impeaching the president. There's a laundry list of things they want. And they basically say, until you meet our demands, we're not going to pass government funding. And one of the people on the House Freedom Caucus, of course, is Representative Dan Bishop, who he's from Charlotte. He's one of North Carolina's representatives. He's running for uh, attorney general, and he is one of the people that is being one of the hardliners on this. It's interesting how North Carolina and D.C., NC and D.C. have so many similarities. Yeah, the Freedom Caucus being, you know, a thorn in the side of the the general population of the of the republican party and and how that how that all plays out and it's very it gets confusing reading our messages about nc's government and dc's government i could get confused which thread i'm reading so we've got freedom caucus we've got speaker drama we have dan bishop who is straddling both and running for attorney general because he misses North Carolina so much. So we'll see. We'll see how that pans out next year with our election coverage. On a, a much lighter, less serious note, uh, a lot of the attention in the news lately was about clothes and what you wear when you show up for work. And it seems like that's pretty much resolved, right, with Fetterman. Uh, you know, I guess the quickest way to say it would be that he was going to be able to get away with wearing a sweatshirt and shorts like a 15-year-old 
And now he has to put a seat on like uh, the rest of the adults in the Senate. Is, is that the best way to describe it? The funny thing is, I feel like Senator Fetterman has been getting away with wearing that outfit the entire time I've seen him in Congress. Like he stands out in the halls of Congress because he's wearing that outfit. Um, when you walk around the halls of Congress, you know who's there to work and who is a tourist because there is a very extreme difference in dress code. And so, like, this kind of came out of nowhere that they said, wear whatever you want on the floor. I will say they are very strict on their standards of what you can wear when you go on the Senate and the House floor. Obviously, you have to be a member of Congress to be on the floor. Um, members of the media can go into the Speaker's Gallery and, like, there are some strict rules. We've had reporters kicked out because, like, one of them rolled her ankle and she was wearing tennis shoes. That's not okay in the speaker's gallery that she had to get out. I've heard of women stuffing um, notebook paper onto her shoulders to make it look like she had sleeves so she could get into the speaker's gallery to interview a lawmaker. You have to go to some extreme lengths sometimes to be able to uh, fit the standards of dress when you're not expecting to go over to that section of the Capitol. So um, this kind of came out of nowhere and irritated people because this is a building with a lot of reverence and um, people think that you should show some respect. And so for them to loosen the rules for seemingly Senator Fetterman, people weren't happy about it. I think the New York Post did a great article on looking at this. They had a reporter go and dress like Senator Fetterman and go to all the fancy restaurants in New York to see if they could get in. They couldn't. And they said they wouldn't let Senator Fetterman in in that outfit either. They didn't care who he was. He wasn't up to their standard. And uh, by, I believe yesterday, they came back and said, if you're going to be on the floor, you need to be in a jacket, a tie, like be fancy. I think that, uh, well, at the, at the legislative building, there's no rule on shoes. And I've noticed that things have gotten a little more casual, more for the men. So, I mean, men's dressy suit clothes is already like super easy. Like I'm freely editorializing here on yeah. how women's attire is much more of a pain. And so to not even like have like, you know, the easy uniform or whatever to wear. Um, but the sleeves don't matter. It's like women, it's dignified dress and his coat and tie uh, for for men. And there was one skeletal session where a freshman senator tried to get into the Senate and he was not appropriately dressed. And uh, I was joking with the Sergeant Arms about it. The other senators who had their coat and ties on came to the door. I'm not going to say who it is, but if you're listening, you know, who you are. and uh, said, yeah, you're not coming in today. And, uh, you know, so sometimes you gotta, you gotta dress for uh, the place you are. And that's we, just, that's just we, how it goes. We had a member of the press uh, corps accidentally walk onto the Senate floor without a suit on once uh, when I was working in the General Assembly and just totally forgot. He just walked in and the sergeant arms didn't catch it for a while until I said, hey, you're not up to attire. And they both were like, oh no, and had to run him out of the room. <laughs> So shout out to all the sergeant arms that have to deal with dress code stuff. We're almost out of time, so let's uh, get to our headliners of the week. Danielle, who or what is your headliner? I'm going to combo mine. So uh, this morning we woke up to the sad news that Senator Dianne Feinstein died this morning, which um, she's one that we actually cover a lot. I work with our congressional correspondents from all over McClatchy, and we do have papers throughout California. So she's one that we watch fairly closely, and uh, I've grown to love 
tracking her throughout the Capitol. So I was sad to hear that news. But I think I cannot not pick the government shutdown as well, because that's going to affect so many people across North Carolina if that comes to fruition this weekend. My, my headliner is going to be uh, our editor joked on our Friday morning meeting in the newsroom that I'm the new NASCAR reporter because <laughs> I ended up covering an event they had at the legislative building. So I also talked to Speaker Moore there, and he said that he is not going to step down from his term, even though he's not going to to run for another term, and that he'll still be Speaker in the springtime. But as we were having that conversation, he's staying between two cars. One was a NASCAR pace car, but the cool car behind that was this 1940 Ford, which is reminiscent of, of racing's roots, which is... Uh, that it was moonshine running and going through the mountains, speeding away from the cops because all your illegal alcohol. So that's a, a strong moment in North Carolina history and other states, too, but North Carolina especially. So anyway, uh, my headliner is also that uh, that cool Ford. My favorite thing in parades are all the antique cars and everything. They're pretty awesome. So. Okay. I grew up going to car shows, so that is a world I strangely know way too much about. Yeah. All right. We'll talk about that sometime on our special edition of like old cars that Don and Danielle saw. All right. We're out of time. Um, thanks for listening. I'm Don Vaughn for Danielle Vitaglia. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>